We stopped last week. But the point of the whole book of Malachi is found in the words, return to me and I will return to you. Why would God inspire these words? Why would God write, return to me and I will return to you? Because his people, the ones that he has redeemed, their hearts are far from him. Why? How does that happen? Because for 1,500 years, God's people have held dear the promises of God that he will bring a kingdom of peace and restoration. And it began with a promise in the garden that that a son one day would crush the serpent's head. Then it was promised to one man, Abraham, that God would bless him and give him a land and a people and that the Messiah, Savior of the world, would come through his offspring. But then, as we know, Abraham never saw any of that. And after a while, God's people, they get a piece of land just to be taken captive by Egypt and go through 400 years of slavery. They're cut loose there and finally dwell in the promised land again just to be taken captive by Babylon. And so all of Israel is in ruins. There's no wall. There's no temple. That was until just a few years before here in our, where we are in Malachi. Because just a few years ago, God's people were set free again. And Nehemiah, the book of Nehemiah, the, he leads the charge to rebuild the walls. And Haggai, he leads the charge to rebuild the temple. And so Israel's finally being rebuilt. And we're in this time of, man, it's, it's here. Things are finally looking like all the pieces are there for the Messiah to come. So with proud chests and big hearts and eager eyes, they wait and they wait and they wait. Their Messiah never comes. And yet they look around to all the nations around them, the evil, brutal nations of heathens around them, and they're flourishing. And so it looks to them like God delights in in them over there, not in his people. So their hearts that were just so full of anticipation and wonder and love They start to drift. Yet God, in unfathomable mercy, is calling out to his people, return to me, and I will return to you. And this is God's call to you and to me. The question is how? How do we return? When you and I are in the midst of sin, when our hearts are far from God, how do we return? when you and I are in the midst of sin, when we are bogged down by the weight of sin and we want to return. But we know how guilty and unworthy we feel. Well, we can't possibly do it in those moments. How do we return? Let's read. Chapter 2, verse 17. You have wearied the Lord with your words. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. 
Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need, I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we pray now that you would come, that you would open our hearts and our minds to, to receive and to, um, to hear exactly what it is you have for us this morning. God, you speak to us. You be lifted high. You, uh, in our minds, lift up Jesus so that we see nothing else but the good news of the gospel through your word. And so that by it we might be transformed. God, if I say anything that is against you or your word, I pray that uh, you would first and foremost keep it from my mouth, but then if it does come out, God, would you help us to all forget it? Would you be lifted high in our time, Father? And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. How do we return? From our text, we have to know two things. One, we have to know our sin. But two, we have to know God doesn't change. We have to know our sin and know that God doesn't change. We must believe that in and of ourselves we are utterly sinful and we need to repent and return. But in order to do that, we must also know that God doesn't change. So let's take a look at the first one. We have to know that we are sinful. Look at verse 17 again. You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. This is that 
They over there, that those nations there are flourishing. What's going on, God? Or by asking, where is the God of justice? I think that's a really scary question to ask, but sure. Um, so he says, behold, and any time you see behold, especially when it's from uh, God speaking, it's always a call to stop and ponder and look at what God is about to say. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So the way that royalty entered into a new village, that how that happened is one of the king's men would go before the king, and he would go, and he'd be cleaning up the streets, and he's like, hey, the king's coming. You guys better clean this stuff up. Clean yourselves. This is John the Baptist. He prepared the way before King Jesus to announce that the king was coming. And he's going and proclaiming a message of be, be cleansed spiritually because the kingdom is at hand. Jesus is coming. In Matthew 3, verse 2, he says this, Repent, return, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Return to God. But it keeps going. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. God, in his immense mercy, takes their eyes off of everything that we've seen in the first two chapters of, of their sin. He takes their eyes off of that, off of their sins, to cast their eyes instead to a glorious day when Jesus is coming. The Messiah will come. But there's something important here. He won't come only bring, bringing peace and restoration. That's what they don't yet understand. Jesus said that he was actually came not to bring peace, but a sword. Which is why God says what he says next in verse 2. Chapter 3, verse 2. But, so he says, your issue, my children, is not that Jesus is coming, or Jesus hasn't come. Your issue is that he's coming. It's not that he hasn't come, it's that he's coming. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. Jesus is coming, not as a lovable teddy bear, but as a refining fire. This fire will purify the precious believer, but it will burn up the unbelieving. And you, my children, are living with hearts that are far from me, nothing more than an unbeliever. Why is this important to know? Verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner, and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. This is not a hierarchy of sins. It's not something to boast in. Like, oh man, I've, I've got the first part of this list down. But even if you make it past all of them, even if you're good on all of those, there's no one in the room that properly fears God. The point is for us, you and I, in sinful deeds and thoughts, live as though we have not been purchased and redeemed from sin. We live as nothing more than unbelievers. This is the truth of sin. And we have to sit in the harshness of it. 
Sin is brutally horrific and an offense to a holy God. And not only that, God just pointed to, look how many people it affects. The sojourners, the widow, the fatherless, all of these people who we're supposed to care for. Sin is not just something that we do sometimes, it's who we are. In belittling our sin, in lying to ourselves and saying that it's not that bad, we misunderstand the grace of God to cover our sins. We have to own our sin, we have to know our sin, we have to confess our sin, and we have to see our sin for what it truly is. Otherwise, we won't return to God for the grace to cover that sin. We remain far from God because I'm not that bad. Why do I need grace? We have to know our sin. This is uh, Luke 7. It was, it's kind of long, so I don't have it up there. But this is Luke 7, 36 through 47. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. This is Jesus. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money, money lender, <coughs> excuse me, a certain money lender had two debtors. One, owned 500, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And Jesus said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he, is for, he who is forgiven little loves little. Get acquainted with your true heart and how sinful it truly is. That you may flee from every part of it to the grace that covers it. If you don't know your sin, dig a little deeper. Ask your spouse to show you. Ask a friend to show you lovingly. Ask God to show you. It's a scary prayer only if we misunderstand grace. How do we return? We must know our sin. But also, point two, we have to know that God doesn't change. If you keep reading, for I, the Lord, do not change. For I, the Lord, do not change. The reason why you and I, in the midst of our sin, 
don't return to God is because we don't fully understand this truth. When we don't return, when we don't repent, we are stating with our lives that we don't know who God is. God doesn't change. The issue is we do. We have a heart that changes. We have a heart that loves sin even though God is better. We have a heart that wants to stay away from a perfect God because we know we aren't perfect. But in that, we have a wrong view of our Father. Why don't we return? Why don't you return? We have sinned. And if we are aware of the severity of our sin, we feel guilt and shame and we run away. Usually sin begets more sin. And when we're sitting there in those moments, we don't want to think about God. Why? Because we feel unworthy. Because we feel unclean. Because we know that we don't deserve the grace that God will give if we do return. Because we think we have to know mentally what grace is before we can turn. Because we think maybe we have to clean ourselves up first. Because we think we need to be clean and worthy and lovely in order for God to love us. Because we think that God is disappointed in us. But the fact that God saved us when we were utterly sinful has not changed. He is gracious and merciful still, like he always has been and like he always will be. For I, the Lord, do not change. I have uh, sometimes thought in my sin that God looks at me and says, you dummy, what is wrong with you? That never comes out of his mouth. A loving father does not say that. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. Why, is, why are we not consumed? Because God doesn't change. That's the point. We change. We have to return. It's, it's, we, have to, we have to return because we change. God doesn't change. So we are not consumed. Verse 7. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes, that is, sinned, and have not kept them. There's not a single one of us who from birth has not been sinful, but because God does not change, his mercy does not change. So return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. And notice, there's not a mention of going to clean yourself up first. Why? Because God does not change. Even if we wait three days to repent, all that we did was forego the grace that was waiting for us the second after. God does not change. His grace is there for sinners who return. But they say, how shall we return? And it's not a question of how do we do this? Like, can you give us some steps? But a, how is this possible? How shall we, a sinful people with hearts that are far from you, how shall we return to you, God? And so God asks the question, will man rob God? Again, a rhetorical question. Why would God say that? Why would God ask this question, will man rob God? They ask, how is it possible to return to you? And God says, will man rob God? Why? Because they know if we return right now, then we will be stealing grace from you, Father. 
He knows that. They didn't even have to say that. He knows it. Will man rob God? Can you rob me? That's not even possible, even if you could. Why? Because this mercy is a gift. Of course we don't deserve it. We are only robbing God if we don't take it. And yet that's where we are. He goes on, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions, you are cursed with a curse. For you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts. If I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. This text is absolutely snatched out of its context and used by swindlers of God's word to get people to give money to their ministries. That is not the point. It kills me to hear those stories, but this is not a prescription of what we are supposed to do. This is not a command of God here. This is God diagnosing the fruit of hearts that are far from him. These men and women weren't taking his gift of grace, but they're sure taking his money. This is their heart. My God, why haven't you blessed us monetarily? He says this knowing that they and we cannot fully do it. Because you are cursed with a curse. That's why you're robbing me. If we did give with perfect motivation all that God has given us, if if we did that perfectly, we would see the windows of heaven open. The point is that we won't. We won't do any of those things. We have the curse of sin. We will, by our sinful nature, always fall short of the glory of God. That's the point of the Christian life, to know our sin and all that it means, but also, and more importantly, to know God. Because God knows that we are prone to wander. He knows that we can't stay, or he would have commanded us to stay. We can't even return properly, and yet even still, God has opened the door of heaven to come and save us by Jesus, the one who did not wonder, the one who did not need to return. The mystery of grace is that Jesus became like you and me to take on our sins, that God could pour out the wrath that was on our heads because of our sin, onto the perfect and spotless lamb of Jesus so that you and I can return. And this God does not change. If it's true that at one point in our lives we could turn to God and God could save us from a life of sin, then that's still true today. The good news of the gospel is not go and be perfect and then you can be saved. The good news of the gospel is that we cannot be perfect unless we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. And now, since that is true, we live and act and breathe from a place of delight and joy and obedience, but not for salvation from it. The bad news is that we still sin, but the good news of the gospel covers that too. Why? This is Romans 8, verse 1 through 3. 
There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done, not we have done, for God has done what the law weakened by the flesh, that is us, could not do. All of our lives are characterized by sin. So all of our lives should be nothing more than repentance and returning back to God. So it is a grace that God has given us this book. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus by calling for repentance. Jesus' first words out of his mouth for his ministry was, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The Lord's Prayer, give us today this daily bread and forgive us our daily trespasses. Until glory, all of life is sin. So until glory, all of life should be marked by returning to the gracious and merciful, unchanging, sovereign, omnipotent, yet tender creator of the cosmos, God of the stars. Return to me, and I will return to you. Why is it true? Why is this true? Because God does not change. That's ultimately how we return. And it is remarkably unfathomable that we, as undeserving sinners, have a God such as this. Yet we do. How do we know? We have Jesus. Our hope is in the finished work of Jesus Christ. Our hope is in the body and blood of the perfect lamb who was slain for us. Our hope is in the gospel that Jesus Christ has saved us when we were utterly sinful. And since that is true, we are now covered with the blood and body of Jesus. And so we can return because God does not change. So we remember. One way that we remember that it is solely by Jesus that we see our grace is like that's why we take communion every Sunday so that we can return and remember the good news of the gospel, of Jesus' broken body and, broken, uh, and shed blood that was spilled for us. We literally return to the Lord. And in it, we see two things. We see the severity of our sin. That the death of Jesus' cross was absolutely necessary for us to make it into heaven. Jesus had to die a brutal death. So we remember that. But then we also remember that God does not change. That this grace is still here for us. And we have a hope of a risen king. So we're going to take communion together to remember the good news of the gospel. If you're a believer, you're welcome to the table to partake as a family, to remember your Savior. However, if you are in unrepentant sin, if you have not yet returned to God from your sin, or if you are an unbeliever, I ask that you would remain in your seat during this time.
If you're in unrepentant sin, hear the call from your father. Return to me, and I will return to you. It's not about you. Return to me. And do so by the grace that you do not deserve, yet that is gifted to you in Christ. Steal that grace. If you're an unbeliever, as it sits now, you have no one to return to. And the truth is, you do not deserve to have anyone to return to. But by the grace and mercy of God to give Jesus Christ his son as a ransom, you too can have a father like this. Believe in the good news of the gospel that Jesus' life was given for you this morning. Repent of your sins and believe in your Savior. For all of us, here is our prayer. Father, we admit that we need this body and this blood to cover our unrepentant and blatant sins. Would you, by your grace, continue to call us to return by your mercy? How do we know that we can return? Because of Jesus. Because it is not up to us. Thank God. Because on the night when he was betrayed, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. That we, a sinful and broken and rebellious humanity, have the grace and mercy of a loving Father to be able to, to return and to repent of our sins and to believe in the Son. And yet, if that was not the most amazing thing in human history, you give even more grace than that. Because you say, buy that. Return to me. God, would you help us to see and to know our sin so that we have nowhere else to go but you. And then in that, God, would you give us a proper and a right view from your word of who you are so that we can return, so that we know waiting there for us is grace. God, change everything about who we are to, to reflect that truth. 
And God, I think overall, we are thankful. We are thankful that we have a God to return to. You don't save us and then leave it up to us. You are there with us every step of the way. And so, God, we lift up <coughs> you and your work and your son. And we give you praise and we thank you. And we forsake and we run from our sin and, and, and our heart is to return back to you. Would you give us a lifestyle of returning? Let it not be something that we even have to think about, but that we turn back to you because we know who our Father is. We know the voice of the shepherd. God, it is only by, <clears throat> by grace through faith that we are saved. And so by your grace and through the faith that you have gifted to us, would you continue to change us? you continue to bring us back to you. Wherever we are this morning, God, would you change us? We thank you for your grace. We know for a fact that it is undeserved. And we thank you. And in all of this, God, we thank you and we love you. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.